Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me this morning is Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. Morning, Jarv. Alex, it's the last week before Christmas, but it does seem to be kind of business as usual for the Tories. They've got sleaze and chaos and drama and whatever else behind every door of their advent calendar at the moment. So Michelle Moan is the focus as it stands in the in the news cycle. She's admitted she lied to the media over her links to a PPE firm from which she stands to profit millions of pounds. Obviously, this is a little bit touchy legally, and the firm in question is being investigated by the National Crime Agency. But what might play out from this on a practical level, but also politically, what impact could it have? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to go into details, actually, to comment on just the tone and the extraordinary intention behind that interview, which seemed to be, we are the real victims here. I mean, whoever advised them to do that interview, they need to sack that person. Because, look, while there is no doubt that the Moans have become the lightning rod for a wider public anger over chronic contracts and profiteering, of which they were only a part, right, they cannot continue to behave as if they were not a part. It may be unfair that they're absorbing all the flack, but, you know, they are at the centre of doing the thing that's created the anger. And so to to sit there and go, well, you know, 30% is a very reasonable profit. Ten seconds after having said that, you know, we joined the government's campaign because of a sense of civic duty. I mean, it's either one or the other, right? This bizarre idea that, you know, it was almost like a war effort and we're trying to do a very good thing and we made a very tidy profit on the side. What's wrong with that? I mean, I don't understand the world that they operate in, that they think they can sit in a territory outside the UK where obviously they are, so they can't, you know, have their assets seized or anything like that and give an interview in which they go, oh, poor us. I don't understand the the sort of blurring of the lines as well between kind of criminality and morality there as well. To say you know, lying to the media isn't a crime. No, it's it's not. But for one, that, that you know, may not be, it doesn't mean it's it's moral. But also the, the semantics around, oh, we, we lied to the media. It's like, but the media is a, a vehicle for deciphering information out to the wider public it's not an entity in itself that lives in isolation so if you if you mislead the media you then go on to mislead other people that's that's more the question so so there are two two separate points the first is that there is you know there are questions around the contract and one of the questions that is not really being talked about around the contract is that of contractual fulfillment And so what the government is actually going after them for is that their gowns did not fulfill the terms of the contract, and so they were unusable. Now, that's a contractual matter. That has nothing to do with morality. They were contracted to provide thing A, got paid for it, and the government say that the thing they provided was not fit for purpose. All right. That's nothing to do with any of this other moral stuff that's around it. And so that will be resolved by the courts and they may have uh, they may end up in a situation where they have to fork back most of that money. 
The second issue is that attempt to obfuscate their relationship to the company. And to say that they lied to the media, and she said, I lied to the media to protect my family. I mean, for family, read self, right? There was not like some possibility that the media would go after her children in some way. That's just a very convenient way of expressing that she was trying to protect them. Yeah, it's sort of this weird sort of uh, trying to go down for yeah, yeah, yeah. On use technicalities, but then also use very broad language at the same time to excuse technicalities. It's, and it's uh, not just that she lied to the media, right? She tried to bury the story. She threatened the media with legal action if they continue to look into this. So, you know, there is a big difference between I lied to the media to protect my children and I threatened the media with my lawyers in order to bury a story that would make me look terrible. Those are two very, very different stories. Yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a very bizarre situation. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll see how that plays out in the mm. in the coming weeks. So, so moving on to to Rishi Sunak, he's kind of uh, going more and more hardline on migration by the day. It seems like to me, is this just going to crank up on a never ending scale until he hope it hits a a tipping point that actually makes people want to vote for him? I mean, he's stuck. He has tried every kind of reset since the start of the year. And I mean every kind of reset. They became fortnightly at some point. Yeah, it was like Sunak to get tough every single Monday. Yeah, new and improved Sunak every week. (laughs) And none have shifted the dial electorally in any significant way, right? And while immigration is not a top issue for the country at large, it is an important issue, but, you know... It's way behind things like cost of living in the NHS. But being seen as hardline on immigration is the defining issue for the next Tory leadership battle because it matters hugely to their membership and their grassroots. And this makes it very confusing for me in relation to Sunak. I genuinely don't know what to make of it because everyone has has written off the possibility that he would hold on to power after an election defeat or would even want to, right? We all say that as if it's accepted wisdom, that he will lose the election and then bugger off somewhere to do something else, probably, you know, run some tech company. And so why not lose the next election, at the very least, as his authentic Thatcherite self, rather than playing to the far right, which could damage his future prospects with regard to running a big company. I find that really difficult to square. And the only answer I can venture is that Sunak must think that there is some path to power, however narrow, and that his own backbenchers are very close to ousting him before he gets to the election. That is the only scenario that makes sense for him to be increasingly playing up to this this hard right rhetoric that is plainly inauthentic as far as he's concerned. Not that he's not very hard right. He is very hard right, but he doesn't particularly care about immigration. That much is clear. He hadn't even mentioned it before he became leader. And so, you know, his concern is the economy and actually lowering 
immigration will soft the economy. The OBR w- would have to revise its uh, projections for the future on the basis of lower immigration, and we would probably see much lower growth long term. So this doesn't feel like an authentic issue for him. And the fact that he continues to pursue it says to me that he must believe somewhere inside him that he can still win this thing. Yeah, it feels like he's sort of doing a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing and running a leadership campaign against his real self. Mm, He's sort of he's competing against who he actually is to try and impress the backbenchers in some way. Why is he at the moment also so obsessed with Maloney? Is that just a desperation to anchor himself to some sort of a winner in Europe somewhere and see maybe that well, he's seen that she won a won a campaign on this kind of issue, so he's trying to echo that. I mean, but then also does that overestimate how much people look to foreign policy and people would go, oh well, he's in cahoots with that person though, so therefore he'd be aligned to me. I think there is an element of them being similar ages, actually, that plays a big part, bigger than people appreciate. And also of Meloni being his only real ally in Europe, you know, she's, I think, similarly shunned in a G20, G7 EU context. She's similarly an outsider. She's the only big name premier that showed up for his AI summit, for instance. And there's also a sort of deal that was just struck between the Italian and Albanian governments, inspired by the Rwanda deal where they're outsourcing the processing of claims. This makes it a very different thing, by the way. So they're not outsourcing their immigration, their asylum claims. They're outsourcing the processing of them, but it will still be under Italian law and successful claimants will still be able to come to Italy, which is very different from the Rwanda scheme. But they are clearly two people trying to find creative solutions that will satisfy a hard right that wants no more immigration. Sunak for party reasons, Maloney for ideological reasons, but that makes them sort of natural allies. And, you know, Maloney gets something out of it because her association with him legitimizes somehow sanitizes her politics in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of uh, Italians. But there is also a more general blurring, I think, of the lines between far-right and centre-right politics in Europe. The two are beginning to bleed into each other in, in quite a significant way in many, many countries. When it comes to those uh, creative solutions, as you mentioned very diplomatically, so Sunak is going to be, he's going to face some legal trouble over the visa situation here in the UK. Is uh, What could develop from that? And also, is he just basically on a on a really practical level, just setting his, his government up for just being in, in the courts for the remainder of its time in office, just wrangling over Rwanda and visas and everything else? Yes, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know precisely what the grounds will be for legal challenge. You know, it could be the setting of the income threshold. It could be 
that it interferes with the right of family life under the ECHR, which would make it very, very contentious in the current environment. It could be the handling of the impact of the change, you know, that not enough advice was taken, which means that the minister made a, a decision which that was ultra-virus. And that is precisely the problem, right? That government announced a very broad plan with no detail. They mentioned something about health and care workers being excluded, but we don't know yet whether they are or not. They have hinted this may include couples already in the UK, which is one of the things that's causing a huge amount of consternation. And I think the issue is that for thousands of people, fleshing out this plan with details at some point between now and April, it's just not good enough. You know, these are people planning, uh, you know, marriages and and life and work and buying houses. You know, they, they can't wait four or five months to know whether they're allowed to live in this country as a couple or not. They need those answers now. And so I think it will become increasingly contentious. And I wouldn't be surprised if cleverly announced something slightly more fleshed out in a hurry, even before the the Christmas break, just to add a little bit more detail to it. With the Christmas break, for for Sunak, will this be a, a respite for him politically? Or could it also just let people's gripes fester, whether that be the, the wider public or also within his party? You know, there's talk of these, the different Tory families and different Tory tribes. Could that all just actually, given a pause, fester and come back even harder for him in the new year? Yeah, I mean, the answer to those questions is yes and yes. Um, <laughs> you know... It, Yes, it will be a, a, a respite because at least he can stop making things worse for a couple of weeks. You know, at least he can have a few weeks off resets. The problem is that he's now the most unpopular member of his entire cabinet by a long chalk with Tory grassroots members and activists. You know, Conservative Home do this uh, monthly poll among Tory members that estimates the popularity specifically of cabinet people. And Sunak is currently at the bottom. And over the recess, MPs tend to spend a lot more time with their constituency parties. So while, yes, it is a welcome break for Sunak, it might mean that people come back in the new year much more hardened in their attitude to him because they have spent the last three weeks hearing from you know, their constituency members, this is going to be an absolute disaster. Is there anything tangible over the next week or so before Christmas that's actually going to to happen politically? You know, anything last minute in Parliament that you can see or any other kite flying of any kind? Is that, you know, is anything really going to happen? Yeah. So Sunak is giving evidence to the liaison committee on Tuesday afternoon. Literally the last thing that happens before Parliament is suspended. He has found those. So the Liaisons Committee, just you know, for the benefit of listeners, is when all the chairs of the individual select committees get together and they question the Prime Minister on their brief each taking turns. They can be very challenging, those sessions, and Sunak has found them particularly tough because he's quite snippy and petulant and those sessions do tend to be quite hard 
I would look out for Diana Johnson's questioning. She's the chair of the Home Affairs Committee. And there's been some quite startling revelations in the last couple of weeks about how real the figures are in terms of the reduction of boat crossings and also the return of migrants, because it turned out that the government had misled people into thinking that, for instance, 10 times the amount of Albanians had been returned that had crossed by small boat than have actually been returned, and that the number is 500, whereas the 5,000 that the government gave included people like foreign offenders, for instance. So very low-hanging fruit that they were probably saving up so they would then make one big splash and say, look, we've just returned 5,000 people, but that is not something that will be repeated because basically they've sent back all the people they could get their hands on. I think that Tuesday afternoon could leave Sunak, if handled poorly, in a bit of a state going into the holidays. Turning now to world news. So France has called for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. Is Israel looking like it's likely to change its position whatsoever? And is there, are there going to be more developments to, to something like that, a more, a more durable pause of some kind actually happening? I mean, Israel is not looking as if it will change its position, and yet it will have to. It's as simple as that. We discussed this a few weeks ago during that humanitarian pause, right? Mm. And and you will remember that I said it will be very difficult for Israel to go back to waging war in the way it had in the eyes of the international community because what looked like the heat of battle and the dealing with an imminent threat two months ago doesn't look like it in the cool light of day after there's been a a two-week humanitarian pause. And that is exactly what has happened. And it seems to me that everyone is running out of patience. Not only France uh, is France asking for a ceasefire now, the White House is asking for a prolonged pause. Um, uh, Our new foreign secretary, one David Cameron, is also asking in much tougher language for a a sort of sustained humanitarian pause, which is a ceasefire, you know. The difference between a sustained humanitarian pause and a ceasefire is there's not a cigarette paper between them. And so the killing of Israel's own hostages a couple of days ago will increase anger domestically against Netanyahu and Likud, And things like, you know, those women that were killed in a Catholic church will increase pressure internationally. I don't think calls for another exchange of hostages and significant pause are capable of being resisted by Israel for more than a few days, if I'm honest. What is the latest from the conflict more generally? And what should we be focused on in in the next week and the, the coming weeks? Well, as I said, I would keep my eyes on what's going on in Qatar. 
you know, that is the key. Will negotiations start again? Will Israel uh, agree to send its Mossad representatives uh, back into those negotiations as it did before? Will the White House harden its language if it doesn't? It's much more about what's going on in the background than the actual conflict itself. We know that there are people trapped in pockets of Gaza at the moment. You know, Lila Moran was on Sky News yesterday, who actually has members of her family, her extended family, cousins and people like that, who are trapped in a church in Gaza. And these are Christians, right? Trapped in a church in Gaza, running out of water. You know, there's a doctor among them, children getting dehydrated. And with Christmas coming up, I mean, I genuinely cannot see how Israel will not be strong-armed into a situation where it has to accept another pause, at least over the holidays. In Ukraine, now, what's the situation like there and what could develop in the coming weeks there as well? What's going on at the moment? So there there are two prongs to this. One is the money. Ukraine is running out of money effectively. They say that they, you know, they will run out of money very early in the new year. Okay, I think I would take that with a tiny pinch of salt. Uh, I think that's slightly overdramatizing the situation to, you know, stun the international community into action. Most independent al- analysts are saying that Ukraine will begin to run into problems next spring when the time comes that they need to invest for another push. The IMF managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, has become involved, urging Ukraine's allies to unlock funding. This is not for war. This is for for its economic recovery, you know, for rebuilding the rest of Ukraine, as it were, because it is still a vital partner in terms of things like food inflation for Europe. And so, while there's all this going on, considering the state, the border now between of that fight has become relatively stable. I mean, always relatively stable. The rest of the Ukrainian economy could start to be reignited and start supplying Europe with the stuff it needs again. And at the same time, you have Hungary blocking funding from the European Union and the Republicans in Congress blocking funding from the US. Some of that will have to become unlocked. So I I suspect that will be resolved very early in the new year. The second arm of it is the military arm. And we saw again yesterday sort of anti-Putin Russian paramilitaries, a, a group called the Freedom of Russia Legion, begin to do really quite frequent attacks over the border into Russia or over the border into Crimea. And Russia did some attacks with drones themselves over the border in Ukraine. And I wonder if that is the shape of things to come for the coming few months when large military movements are difficult until the ground completely freezes And, you know, it will become much more about surprise drone attacks against targets. It seems to me that will be the pattern over the winter. When it comes to what 
Putin's plans are over the next few months. I mean, he has rejected Biden saying that Russia wants war with NATO. But the issue being, we can't really take anything he says at his word, can we? So should we be more concerned of those escalations? I mean, when it comes to who I would trust over Biden and Putin, I, I think I would very much lean <laughs> towards Biden's take. Yes, I mean, okay, even a blind pig finds an acorn once in a while. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think we can take what he said as credible. The last thing put, Putin wants is an all-out war with NATO, right? That doesn't mean he's not going to prod NATO in every conceivable way to see how far he can take the mickey. He will. And, you know, he's already warning of problems with neighboring Finland, because now Finland has joined NATO, of course, and it's uh, it's announcing plans to reorganize military divisions to station more troops on that border by the EU and NATO border. I mean, in a way, we knew that was coming when Finland joined NATO. But the alternative, which has been for the last couple of decades to have this sort of neutral zone between the two, um, between Russia and NATO, I mean, that resulted in Ukraine being invaded. So that has obvious risks. I mean, I think the big issue with the situation in Ukraine is a sort of a pessimism is beginning to creep in uh, the West's rhetoric. I think there were slightly inflated expectations of the spring offensive and the disappointment that has come with those aims not being achieved, I think has made the West quite pessimistic about victory overall. And I don't think that's I don't think that's right. I think victory overall is still achievable. It will require strategic endurance from the West. Finally, what what US news should we be keeping an eye on over the next couple of weeks as well? Biden is facing this impeachment inquiry. Will there be anything that develops from that imminently? There's also Trump is joining in cranking up anti-migration rhetoric. Not that he's not done that in the past, but it does seem to have taken an even starker turn. What developments might there be over that side of the, the pond? Yeah, so very quickly on those two things, I doubt the Biden impeachment inquiry will lead to anything, but I don't think that's its point. Its point is actually to keep it going. So, you know, the House of Representatives has voted to open an impeachment inquiry into Biden over all the, you know, what they say is uh, them profiting while he was vice president to Barack Obama, you know, through his son. I mean, they have presented, it, it, it really is quite striking that they've presented zero evidence on this. But they voted for it anyway, because their ultimate aim is to present a situation to the electorate that says, oh, look, they're all the same. They're both under impeachment. They've both done dodgy stuff because of the amount of indictments against Donald Trump. They will sway some people, some some people who are swayable in the center of politics, will be hesitant to vote for Trump because of the amount of 
indictments he's got against him at the moment. And the only ploy against that from Republicans is to create a situation to just fling enough mud around so that everyone looks filthy. That is their only strategy to respond to that. And that's what they're trying to do. So no, I don't think it will go anywhere, but I don't think its point is to go anywhere. Its point is to stay open and keep looking at Biden in with sort of frowned eyebrows until next November. Yeah, I suppose the other side of that as well is just wasting congressional time, isn't it? So it stops the yeah. the resources which Biden has to do anything positive for the country as well. So he can't actually, he can't boost people's living standards or whatever is in the way he might if he had more time. So it's another way to, to make him look worse. You know, and it attacks him through his family, which is low, but it will destabilize him psychologically. You know, it's a dirty move, but it's it's no less than we've come to expect. Now, on the anti-migration stuff, I think that betrays a, a weakness in Trump, actually. I think he's quite scared of economic recovery sort of catching up with people's pocketbook. The American economy is turning around in a really serious, almost miraculous way, right? It is beginning to grow significantly. Interest rates will begin to come down. Inflation is under control. Wall Street is experiencing an absolute boom. But there is a delay between what what the Americans say, Wall Street catching up with Main Street. And so if that happens, I think Trump will be in a very, very difficult position come the next election. Alex, this is the last start of your week of 2023, although I do expect you to call me at 8am on Monday the 25th of December to, to wish, me, <laughs> wish me Merry Christmas and fill me in on, on anything that I might need to know. But we're, we're going to be back, you and I, on January 2nd to start the year. Do you think what I'll be asking you about will be, will be much different than what it was today? Will there be, be any particularly new things or are we also going to be talking about Tory sleaze and, and the like when it comes to domestic domestic situations yeah yeah i mean yeah to an extent i think i think there there will be six stories that dominate our particular corner of the news universe as it were you know the meltdown inside the tory party will continue the uk election will happen next year probably in spring i i'm still a fan of the spring election the us election is coming up on the international stage the Israel-Hamas situation will continue to dominate geopolitics, as will the conflict in Ukraine. And I think we will see a lot of stories about extreme weather events. Already a few big things are starting to happen, and I think that those sort of stories feeding into a general climate anxiety will become a big, big story next year. So... I think that's broadly the stuff that will define 2024. Then again, you know, sitting here, let's say we were sitting here in December 2019, who could have predicted what would dominate the next year from that point onwards? Well, let's hope there there may be some cheery things and nothing quite that unpredictable, fingers crossed, as the... Uh would be uh, be my hope for it. Alex, as ever, thank you very much for, for joining me this morning. Thank you. 
And thanks to all of you who listen to Start Your Week every week. If you want to help keep the bunker going, remember you can support us on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or search Bunker Patreon Podcast. From £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early, plus a shout-out on the show. Here is Alex with today's. A very special festive thanks to Felicia Chan, Gary Christopher, Jana Thornborough, and Katarina Dankert. Thank you for listening to The Bunker Start Your Week. We'll see you in the new year. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreev. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.